Today I'm continuing a series talking about how to be positive in a negative world. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of Christians haven't realized how much we've been influenced by the negativeness in our world. The sad fact is that most people spend much more time being influenced by the world than they spend influencing the world. We don't spend as much time studying the Word and seeking God as we do plugged into the things of this world and our hearts are just being overwhelmed. I've used a lot of scriptures where Jesus said that this would be one of the signs of the end time, that man's hearts would wax cold because of iniquity abounding. And I've just used a lot of things. I talked about how that Lot was, uh, I mean, he lost everything because he simply went after what was good financially, a good business decision, and didn't consider the spiritual impact of being associated with people. And it says, This righteous man, in seeing and hearing their unlawful deeds, vexed his righteous soul from day to day. And I tell you, this is happening to many, many, many Christians today. And so I think it's timely that we teach on how to stay positive in a negative world. I want to turn over to Joshua chapter 1 and look at some of the commands that God gave Joshua. And I wish I had time to put this in its full context. I just say some of these things very quickly. But you need to meditate on this, that Joshua was the replacement or the follow-up for Moses. How do you follow that kind of a person? How do you follow a person that does these plagues and delivers an entire nation from the mightiest nation on the face of the earth at that time, parts the Red Sea, calls fire out of heaven, and does all of these kind of things? How do you follow an act like that? Did you know that this would have been a great opportunity for Joshua to be so intimidated, so overshadowed by Moses that he could have just given up. And the Lord here is giving Joshua some instructions as he takes over the leadership of the Israel uh, of the nation of Israel. And here in Joshua chapter 1 verse 6 it says this is the Lord speaking to Joshua. He said, "Be strong and of a good courage." For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then, the then is referring to when you meditate in this book of the law day and night, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success." Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. We read three verses here. And in these three verses, there are three times God said, Be strong and of a good courage. And He even said, Be not dismayed. Did you know if you look the word dismay up, I think that this is very descriptive of where a lot of us live. We are dismayed. The word dismay doesn't mean that you've totally given up, that you've quit, but you've just lost your enthusiasm. You're frustrated. You're perplexed. It's a, a loss of your, I guess a way to say it would be, it's like you've lost your momentum. You haven't gone backwards, but you aren't going forward. You're just kind of stuck. And this is where a lot of people are. 
They have just been overwhelmed with all of the pressures and all of the negative stuff. All of us are seeing the rise of ungodliness and the rise of people who are just, I mean, anti-God. Things that would not have flown one generation ago are now being promoted as the new normal. And uh, when you see this, there's a lot of people that when it comes to trying to change our culture, they are dismayed. Maybe they aren't totally giving up, but they just have lost their enthusiasm. They aren't sure that they're ever going to see anything happen. And the Lord here told Joshua, don't be dismayed. Be not afraid. And notice the combination, the way that he put these things uh, together. Back in verse um, verse 6, he says, Be strong and of a good courage. In verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do all of these things. And he says in verse 9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. So what is the opposite of being strong and of a good courage? It's being afraid and being dismayed. So one of the points I want to get across as we start talking about how to be positive in a negative world, God would have been unjust to give Joshua these commands and likewise give us all of these commands about staying positive and staying strong and being of a good courage, he would have been unjust to command us to do that if you couldn't do it. And I'm going to say some things right here that is really going to go against a lot of our society norms. And I know that there are a lot of you that are going to say, you're a preacher, you're unqualified to speak in these areas, you're unqualified to say any of these kind of things, but I'm saying it based on what the Word of God says. There are a lot of people today who have just embraced the fact that your life has to have all of these highs and lows, that you have to go through periods of depression and discouragement, and that you're just, uh, that if you don't do that, then you are in denial. And psychology has had a huge impact on the body of Christ today, so much so that a lot of Christians just expect to go through all these things. There's people that when you go through a hard time, if the doctor tells you you're going to die or something bad has happened to you, there's people that if you were to take the stand that God is commanding right here, that I'm advocating through this teaching, I get criticism all of the time. People saying, you aren't being sensitive. You aren't being compassionate towards people. You need to recognize that it's just normal for people to suffer and be grieved and to be hurt and that you have to go through these processes. And sometimes it takes years and years and years to just work your way through it. And people criticize me as being harsh and insensitive. I'm telling you, God said these things. God was speaking to Joshua. And Joshua was taking over an impossible situation. You know, I could literally spend an hour describing how the children of Israel were so stubborn and so rebellious. God even got put out with them. And in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus, God told Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to kill them all. (laughs) Boy, God is long-suffering. God is merciful, much more so than I am. And yet God got so put out with these people that he was going to kill them all and start over with Moses. I mean, this was, the Lord said that they are a stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people. This was a hard assignment. And you, as if you were to go through here, I mean, the people rebelled at Joshua, rebelled at his leadership. They disobeyed. They had problems. Achan took some of the accursed thing and because of it, they were defeated before their enemies. And did you know most people today would sit there and say that it's wrong. 
it's wrong to tell Joshua to be strong and of a good courage. You know what? There were tragedies that happened. He should have grieved. He should have been hurt. If he didn't, he wouldn't have been normal. He wouldn't have been natural. And yet God Almighty is telling him, you be strong and of a good courage. Again, I am acknowledging that we have these things, but I'm saying they do not have to overcome us. You know, there are some people that think that I never have any problems because I give testimony about how I overcome things. I am just the same as anybody else. But I can say that with the help of the Lord, I have the temptation. I have the feelings sometimes of just quitting and giving up. I have the feelings of being hurt and all of these things. They come to me, but I refuse to give place to them. I have not adopted this mindset that you can't just walk in victory, that you've got to go through the muck and the mire, and you've got to be defeated, and you've got to fail at times. I have things come at me that give me those opportunities, but I resist them and overcome them. And again, there are people that are just, they are very offended by what I'm saying because they feel like you're condemning me. I'm not condemning you. I'm just telling you that there's something better. You do not have to go through the same problems that unbelievers have. You've got God living on the inside of you. You've got access to the power of God. And the very fact that God said, be strong and of a good courage. And he told you to do these things. He would have been unjust to tell you to do something that you can't do. I'm telling you, you can be strong and of a good courage. And some of you feel like, but I've tried and I've failed. You just need to gut it up and do it. I'm not talking about just in your flesh, in yourself, but in the, in the spirit. You need to draw on the power of God and do it. I remember when uh, my wife, Jamie, was pregnant with our very first child. I was pastoring a little tiny church in Sigaville, Texas. We had, I think the largest crowd we ever had was 12. Lots of times we'd have five, six, seven people there. And because of it, we struggled financially, and it was just tough. It was tough. And then we had about $600 worth of doctor bills for the delivery of our first child. And I didn't have $600. This is back, I mean, when Jamie was eight months pregnant, we actually went two weeks without any food. And when I say any food, I mean we drank water that was it, a total fast, not because we wanted to, but because we didn't have any money. And we were fighting thoughts about what is this going to do to our child. And I mean, it was a pressure situation. And we were about two weeks away from the birth of our son. This $600 was going to have to be due, and I didn't have one penny for it. And some of you think that this $600 wasn't a big deal, but my total income the first year of our marriage was $1,523 in a year. And in two weeks, I had to have $600. We actually lost our house. We had to move in with Jamie's parents. We were living with them when this happened. And anyway, I'm just saying these things to say it was just... It was nearly overwhelming to me. Even though it may seem like a small amount to you considered uh, proportional to where we were, it was just an insurmountable odd uh, amount. I just couldn't overcome it. And I actually had a midweek service with the people that came to church. There were so few people. I think there was me and my wife. Uh, there was two others and then one lady. So that was like a total of five of us. And we decided to go over to this lady's house and have church there. 
And they wanted me, you know, we sang some and then they wanted me to minister. And I just told these people, I said, you know what? I just don't feel like ministering to anybody. I need you to minister to me. And they just thought, well, you're the pastor. So, you know, they just blew it off and they kept waiting. And I said, honestly, I'm not ministering. I'm not doing anything. So what we did, we started watching the 700 Club on television. And it just so happened that Kenneth Copeland was the guest minister on that uh, program that night. And so we were sitting there and he was reading from 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Let me just turn over and read this. I never, I never will forget this experience. I tell you what, God rang my bell. But in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. He was saying, if you are operating in faith, you overcome. If you aren't overcoming, it's because you aren't standing in faith. And he wasn't saying it in a condemning way. He was saying it in a way trying to encourage people that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And if you would get into faith, you could overcome the world. And in my heart, I was watching this program and I was just so discouraged. Like, God, I've tried to stand. I've tried to believe you. It's not working. We're less than two weeks away. I don't have a penny. We haven't eaten in a week. We don't have any money, God. It's not working. And Kenneth was saying, if you are born of God, you overcome the world. And this is how it comes is through your faith. And in my heart, I didn't say this out loud, but I just thought, I said, Kenneth, I tried it. And it didn't work. And I mean, it's like he heard me. I'm sure it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Kenneth just says, don't tell me that it's not working. Don't say it didn't work. God says that if you are believing God, it overcomes the world. And man, when he said that, I said, well, I tried. And he said, don't try it. Just do it. God gave you a command to do it. And you just do what he commanded you to do. And every question, every thought that I had, it's just like the Holy Spirit was telling, telling Kenneth Copeland exactly what I needed. And I mean, he just answered every criticism, every gripe, every complaint that I had. And at the end of that program, I was sitting there, I was fired up and I was saying, praise God, this does work. It's just the fact that I've quit and given up and I'm not going to quit. And it encouraged me to stand. And the long and the short of this story is that in the next two weeks, I don't even remember exactly how it happened, but in the next two weeks, we had that $600 we paid for the birth of my son, and it was done. And the very morning that Joshua was born, I think Jamie went to the hospital something like 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was there until 7 or 8. And I remember after he was born, we had the money. We paid for the doctor bills and things, which was a major miracle, but I didn't have a penny left. And on my way home from the hospital, I was going to go back and get some sleep. I didn't have any gas. And I don't recommend this. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying desperate times call for desperate measures and I prayed and I honestly felt like the Lord told me to just pull into this gas station and fill up my car with gas. And I didn't have a penny and I didn't have a credit card. I, I mean, there was no way to pay for it. I wouldn't recommend doing this, but I just, like I said, I was desperate and I felt like God gave me a piece to do it. So I pulled in, I filled up my car with gas and I turned around to go in and just tell them what I'd done. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. 
And when I walked in, there was a man in there who knew me. He had been to one of my Bible studies. And he said, what are you doing over here this early in the morning? And I said, well, my son was just born, my first, my first son. And I said, I'm just coming from the hospital and I was filling up my car with gas. And he said, oh, well, that's wonderful. Let me buy this tank of gas for you. And he bought my gas. It was absolutely miraculous how everything worked out. But I'm saying, did you know how that happened? I could have just sat there and have nursed my hurts and pains. I could have been discouraged. Again, I'm getting all of this from over in Joshua where he told Joshua, he says, you be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He was commanding it. Am I saying that I wasn't discouraged? No, I had discouragement come. And at that instance, I was just about to go under. I was about to give in. And yet God sent a man on television who started speaking to me, encountering these things with the Word of God. And I decided to just keep standing. You know, the Bible says over in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that when you've done all to stand, you just stand. I tell you, it's not over till it's over. And some of you are in desperate situations and you are just ready. You are discouraged and you're ready to get rid of your confidence and your uh, strength. You are just ready to run up a white flag and say, I failed. I'm encouraging you that God is commanding you to be strong and of a good courage. He would be unjust to do that if you couldn't do it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God will never, never, never let you be tempted above what you are able. If you feel like I can't stand it another minute, then stand too. Because if nothing else, even if your faith isn't working, even if you don't know enough, if nothing else, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 will kick in. And if it's true, if your assessment is true and you have reached the breaking point and I can't stand it anymore, then 1 Corinthians 10, 13 will kick in and God will never let you go beyond your limits. And so just stand and stand and stand and you resist and you reject this and you be strong and of a good courage. I know to some people, again, they say that this is condemning me. You aren't being compassionate towards me because I've been hurt and I've given up. I am being compassionate. Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is tell a person to stand up. Stand up. Get, you know, get strong. I had a guy one time. I'm not going to mention his name, but one of my best friends. And this guy had gone through a lot of things, had uh, nearly died. He had been given some medication that had messed his mind up and he wasn't able to remember stuff and he just felt like his life was over. And anyway, he came to where I was pastoring and he was just talking about how terrible it was and his life is over, his ministry is at an end. And, and I put up with it for a week or two and I tried to encourage him. And every time I'd get him encouraged, he'd just come back, oh, no, it won't work. And finally, he was so discouraged, he was talking of killing himself. And he was talking of committing suicide. Again, you need a word from God to deal with people. Don't you just take what I'm saying and go out here and do this in the flesh. You'll get in trouble. But I really felt impressed of God that this guy just needed to pull his thumb out of his mouth and grow up. I had rented him a house and I took the keys. They were all deadbolts. 
on the doors to this house. I locked this man in that house and I said, I have shared enough with you to set you free. I want you to either act on the Word of God and start doing what you know the Word says and you start believing God and come out of this thing or go ahead and kill yourself, but I am tired of listening to you gripe. Now again, I'm qualifying this. You better have a word from God when you do that. I felt like this. The Lord just told me to say to him, be strong and of a good courage and act on this. And I locked him in that house and I said, I'll be back in two days. And you either start operating in victory or kill yourself, get it over with, but quit griping. And I left and man, after I did it, I started thinking, oh God, what have I done? And I spent two days praying and fasting and believing God that this guy wouldn't kill himself. And I went back and you know, when I unlocked him and let him out of that house, this guy was stronger than horseradish. He came out of there and I mean, we ministered together for 25, 30 years after that. And this guy has seen many, many, many people's lives changed. Again, there's a balance. I pray that you let the Holy Spirit give you some wisdom in applying what I'm talking about. But the principle is true. That you know what? We need to tell people, yes, you need to show compassion towards people that are struggling. And I'm aware that things like that happening. But I'm speaking to you in love today. That you know what? You need to stand up. You need to stand on the promises that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. If you are born of God, you are a world overcomer. And it's through faith that you are going to overcome. And you need to stand up and you need to go to resisting these problems. Take your authority. Get angry. Fight the devil. Instead of just giving in, the Bible says, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. If the devil hasn't fled, you haven't resisted adequately. The word resist means to get angry. To violently resist. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. I'm trying to stir you up today and let you know that praise God you can resist. All of the negativism. I mean there's some bad, bad things going on in this world. But you don't have to open the door and let those things in. And you don't have to be overcome by those things. Jesus also said in John chapter 14 verse 1, He says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now that is a powerful passage of Scripture. And if you understand that he spoke that to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, and they were about to watch Jesus be arrested and betrayed and ultimately crucified, killed, and buried. And yet he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Did you know most people would think that is totally unreasonable? And today in our world, not only in our secular world, but even in our church world, somehow or another, we've swapped, we've turned around so much that if a person really encourages you to stand strong in the face of adversity and not to give in, but to be strong and resist your temptation and your feelings and things like this, then those people are criticized as being insensitive and you aren't caring and you aren't compassionate towards the weak. And people who just fall apart and just, you know, talk about how terrible it is and things like that, they are considered to be the compassionate ones. Now, I admit that there is, we do show compassion towards people when they are struggling and stuff, but sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is kick a person in the rear and tell them to get up and pull yourself together and get things together. 
Amen. I know that there's a lot of people disagree with me. And again, that is not the way that our touchy-feely world is going. But I'm telling you, we need, we need cheerleaders. We need some people to stand up and say, you can do it and get back in and stand up and trust God and believe God. And I'm talking about how you can stay positive in a negative world. And I am leading the charge telling you that you do not have to be overwhelmed. Jesus told his disciples not to let their heart be troubled because they could do it. He would be unjust to give a command like that if it was physically impossible to do that. It may be impossible on just your own, but we aren't just on our own. We have the power of God living on the inside of us and you can get up. And you can stand. And having done all to stand, you can still stand, is what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. And in case anybody thinks that this is only something that you do when everything is going right, Jesus went on to say, you know, I quoted John 14, 1, the night before his crucifixion, he told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. And then in the end of that discourse, it's the same discourse, John chapter 16, verse 33, the last thing he said to them before they went out and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He told them, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And that removes any doubt that this is talking about just let not your heart be troubled when everything is going good and when you only have, you know, medium type problems that are okay. But if it's something that's big, you're just, you're in denial if you don't fall apart like a $2 suitcase. See, that's the mindset that our world is projecting today. But Jesus told it to his his disciples the night before his crucifixion and he ended that discourse by saying, I know you're going to have tribulation. Like specifically, you are going to be running for your life and thinking that you might be killed within 24 hours. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And so this leaves no doubt that this isn't something you just do when you only have medium or less type of problems. But regardless of what problem you're going through, even in the midst of tribulation, you can be of good cheer. And so it's important that you embrace that this is even possible because a lot of people today, they just have embraced defeat and negativism and they live in it. They wallow in it and they think that for them to stand up would be just denying how they feel. I don't deny that I have discouragement and despondency come against me, but I do deny that that is ever going to dominate me and control me. I don't feel condemned if I begin to be discouraged by problems that come my way. But I am not going to let those problems overcome me. I'm not going to empower them by speaking them out my mouth. I'm going to resist them. And if I resist the devil, he will flee from me, James 4, 7. And I am going to come out victorious on the other side. And I'm trying to encourage you that you can do this. Let me take a passage of Scripture here out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is Moses. Nearly the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses after the Lord had used him to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt through 40 years in the wilderness. He is now getting ready to go up unto Mount Nebo and die and be gathered unto the Lord. And so he calls all of the nation of Israel together. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is him just rehearsing the things that God has done, giving them admonitions, telling them he's about to leave. You're going to be on your own. You are going to have to uh, be strong and do these things. And he's telling them how that when they go into the promised land that they are going to... uh, 
meet obstacles. The people will resist them. They are going to fight wars, but they are going to overcome. And he says, no man will be able to stand before you. But that doesn't mean that they just automatically flee. They're going to fight, but he promised that the Israelites would win. And so he's giving them this admonition. And look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 17. It says, if thou shalt say in thine heart, this is after he had given all of these positive commands about you are going to win, it will happen. But he says, if thou shalt say in thine heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? You know, for years I read that verse as he's telling them, the Israelites, if you say in your heart, these nations are more than I, and then the Israelites said, how can I dispossess them? And that's the way that I read it. But if you look at this, there's actually a semicolon after that first phrase. If you say in your heart, these nations are more than I, semicolon, how can I dispossess them? This isn't the Israelites saying, how can I dispossess them? But this is God saying that if you begin to start thinking that this is just bigger than you and you cannot do it, then how can I, God, dispossess them? How can I drive these people out? Boy, this is a big statement. This is saying that God's movement in this earth and God's movement in your life is proportional to the faith and the power that you have working on the inside of you. And I know that this flies in the face of a lot of religion today who believes that God is sovereign and that God just sovereignly moves and He controls everything and whatever He wills automatically comes to pass and we really don't have anything to do. It's just whatever God determines. Man, I, I hate that doctrine. That is absolutely wrong. I can guarantee you God is not the one causing all of this ungodliness. He prophesied that it would happen, but that did not mean that God caused it. He just has the ability to know what's going to happen in the last day and to know men and to know what their evil desires will lead us towards. And he prophesied that things would happen. But God is not the one causing the ungodliness. God is not the one that's causing genocide and rape and murder and hatred and bitterness and lust and all of the things that are going on in the world. God does not control these things, and God flows through people, and He only moves to the degree that people believe Him and trust Him and empower Him to move. A verse that goes right along with this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, and you know, when I'm in churches, I'll often quote that verse and I'll just stop right there. And I'll say, how many believe that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think? And I mean, everybody will raise their hand and go, I do, and they'll praise God. I've even had the pastor stand up on the front row and yes, and just lead the charge. And then I'll say, that's not true. And I mean, it just shocks them. But what I'm trying to do is to let them realize it. See, we quoted that God is just able to do anything. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. But that verse goes on to say, according to the power that works in us. If there is no power of faith and of love and of joy and of peace and of all of the things that God has given us, if those things aren't working in us, then God is not able to move in our life. If Satan gets your joy, if he gets your love, if you're out of faith, it will stop God's power working in your life. 
And that's a statement that is just radically, uh, diametrically opposed to what a lot of religious teaching is. And again, they just say that God sovereignly moves. And if your life is a total mess, then why did God let this happen? I'm saying God has a perfect plan for you. God has a perfect plan for this nation, for whatever nation you are in. God has a perfect plan for you, but He does exceeding abundantly above all you ask or think according to the power that works in you. And if you have quit believing God, if you have let your heart become overwhelmed, if your love has grown cold, if you have become negative because you live in a negative world, then you stop the power of God from operating in you and through you to other people. Man, those are radical, radical statements that I've made. But if you're paying attention and if your heart is open, what the, Ho- the Holy Spirit is going to take the words that I've spoken and use them to show you why you have hit this blockage, why you aren't able to go on beyond this. And it's because many of you have just become discouraged. You've become dismayed. You have let your heart be troubled. You aren't of good cheer. You aren't positive in a negative world. You've become negative. And I tell you, it's up to you to encourage yourself in the Lord. I'll go into greater detail on this when I talk specifically about David. But over in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David had been ordained to be king and anointed to be king for over 13 years. And yet, for all of those 13 years, he had been running for his life. He had been facing death. His life had gone from good to bad. His wife had been taken from him and given to another man by his father-in-law, who was the king. And I mean, he had just had negative thing after negative thing happen. He finally came back to his town of Ziklag after being out with all of his men of war. There was about 600 of them. And their town had been overrun. All of their buildings had been burned. All of their goods had been taken. And their wives and children were all taken captives. And the people had just had as much as they could handle. And they were ready to stone David to death. It wasn't David's fault. David had lost his wives and children too. And yet in the midst of his grief, it says that he cried until he could cry no more. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there. I've been there to where I've just been so hurt that eventually you just can't be hurt anymore. And you just have to turn around and either dig a grave and crawl in it and die or you have to get up and start doing something. And David reached that place. And he, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, I think it's around verse 4 or 5, it says, but in the midst of all of this negative stuff, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And the way he did it, he called for an ephod, which back in those days they didn't have a written Bible. This was the way that they inquired of the Lord was through this ephod. And he prayed and God spoke to him and told him to go and pursue the people that had overcome his town. And he would definitely win. He would recover all of the spoil. He would get back all of the uh, people that had been taken captive and that he would win. And he used the word of the Lord to inquire of God and God gave him a promise and he was able to overcome all of the opposition of his men. They were ready to stone him. He was able to overcome his own negativism and hurt and pain. And within about 48 hours of that time, he, be, he saw 
the promises that God had given him come to pass. And he was or, uh, ordained to be king. He was anointed to be king. And he took over the kingdom. And everything that God had promised came to pass. If he would have quit right then, he was only 48 hours away from seeing total breakthrough and total deliverance. And yet he endured the greatest hardship and probably one the greatest difficulty of his life up until that time. And I'm telling you, it's the same with you. You may be feeling overwhelmed by the things that are happening in the world in general or by the specific things that are happening to you. And your tendency is to say that, you know, these things are bigger than I. How could I ever win? But God is saying, if you ever do that, God, you stop God's power because he flows through you according to the power that works in you. You cannot get into discouragement. You can't get into defeat. You must resist this and you must begin to build yourself up like David did and encourage yourself in the Lord. And if nothing else, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says that there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. You know, some of you think that your situation is worse than anybody else's. And if you buy into that lie and if you begin to sing this old song, nobody knows the trouble I feel. And if you think that your situation is worse than anybody else, then you will exempt yourself from any of the promises of God that tell you how to overcome because after all, yours is worse than anybody else. The Word of God doesn't cover your situation. That's not true. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There is no temptation that has ever come to you but such as is common to man. That means that it's the same thing that everybody else faces. Your situations may be a little different, but it's the same thing, just a different wrapper, a different package, a different bow on it, but it's the same contents is what it's saying. And it goes on to say, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to overcome this. And so this is a promise that God will not let you go beyond a breaking point. If you feel that you've had all you can take and you're just ready to give up, if you can identify with David that you have lifted up your voice and cried until you have no more power to weep, it looks like your people around you, everything, it's going to kill you and you're just at the breaking point, well then take a lesson from David. Take a lesson from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and know that you are right at the point of victory. Because even if you don't know enough to stand and to do everything on your own, if nothing else, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is going to kick in and it's going to say that you cannot be pushed beyond what you are able to endure. So when you feel like you are just at that breaking point and you can't stand another minute, then you need to stand too. Because when you reach that, that breaking point, that point of no return where it's just more than you can bear, then 1 Corinthians 10, 13, if no other scripture will bring you through, that scripture will bring you through and show you that God is not going to allow you to be tempted above what you can endure. So I just want to encourage you that yes, we live in a negative world. Yes, there's lots of bad things going on. But the scripture clearly says that we are supposed to be strong and of a good courage, not to be afraid, nor to be dismayed. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. He wouldn't have given that command if you couldn't do it. 
And so you can do it. And this was spoken to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. I mean, the worst time that we could imagine. Things that actually, if you were to put yourself into those disciples' position where they had left their families, their jobs, they had done everything. They had left everything and hinged every hope that they ever had in the world on Jesus being the Messiah. And yet they were going to see him arrested and treated like a mere man, and then be crucified and buried and dead. All of their hopes were going to be dashed. Most people would say they should have been devastated. But Jesus told them, don't let your heart be troubled. If he told them to do that, then they could do it. They didn't do it, but they could have. And we can also do it. Many of us aren't doing it, but we can do it. You can get up. You can stay strong in the Lord. And he says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Not I am going to, I have already. God has already overcome whatever problem is coming against you. And you can encourage yourself in the Lord, just like David did. You can take the word of God. You can inquire of God and you can ask him. And he has promises in here that will be the antidote, the answer for whatever your problem is. I can promise you that. And you can focus on them and you can stand strong. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says you will never go beyond what you can bear. If you feel that you are just at the end of your rope, you need to tie a knot and hang on because God is coming through and God is going to bring you through this. And you just need to stand up and encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Let me use as an example Noah. Let me go back to, you know, I started in Matthew chapter 24 and I used verse 12 where Jesus said that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I don't think anybody would argue that iniquity is abounding and I don't think anybody would argue that the love of many has waxed cold. So we are living in these end times. Some people say, how do you know it's the end times? Well, I can promise you it's my end times. Amen. I'm drawn to the end of my time. And so I've got to live as if, man, I've got to redeem the time. And Jesus was speaking about these end times here in Matthew chapter 24. And here's another thing that he said over in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but uh, of that day, excuse me, that's a wrong verse. It's verse 37. But as the days of Noah were so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So he says in these last days, it's going to be as in the days of Noah, that things are going to be going along. People won't even see the signs of the time. They won't recognize what's going to happen, and it's going to take them by surprise. But he specifically referred to the days of Noah. So I want to turn over and use Noah as an example of a man who is able to stay positive, to stay focused on God, even in the midst of a situation that I believe was worse than our days. You know, here it is approximately, uh, I don't know, 4,500 years after the flood of Noah, according to Scripture. And uh, here we are just now approaching back to the wickedness and the corruption 
that was prevalent in the days of Noah. Now that's amazing. It, the flood of Noah is only 1,565 years after the fall of Adam. And yet in that brief period of time, less than 2,000 years, the earth had become so corrupted that God saw that the only way to preserve things and keep it going was literally to wipe out this ungodliness. It would be similar to the way today that we deal with cancer. We don't have an exact cure for cancer, so what they do, if they find a part of your body that's got cancer in it, they cut that part out and then they radiate anything around it trying to kill the cancer cell. You know, that's a pretty severe thing. I mean, it's death to a part of your body. But compared to death for the entire body, most people uh, take that as an acceptable thing and they go ahead and do it. And yet it's terrible. You're cutting off a part of your body. You're, you're giving radiation which kills healthy cells. And yet people accept that as a good practice. Well, in a sense, that's what God did. God loved the human race, but the human race in just less than 2,000 years had so corrupted themselves that God had to like surgery, cut out all of that ungodliness and go down to just a very few people who were honoring him and start over and try and preserve it. And then he introduced the law through Abraham not very long after that. And this law uh, put a fear in people that diminished the amount of sin that they were committing. It actually increased the transgression and it made condemnation abound. There were side effects to it, but it did instill a fear in men that here we are 4,500 years after the flood of Noah and we are just now approaching back to the same level of ungodliness. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, 37, that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the end times, in the days of the Son of Man when He comes. So we are just now beginning to experience the level of ungodliness, the openness of people sinning and flaunting it in the face of God that Noah experienced. And we can take some lessons from Noah. So I want to turn over and look at the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. And it says in Genesis chapter 6 and in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And so God is long-suffering, but he's not forever suffering. There did come a time where God had to deal with things. And even under our day of grace, did you know that God is long-suffering? Now, towards those who've accepted His grace, He has promised that He would never leave us nor forsake us. We have an everlasting covenant. He's forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins, the ones that we haven't committed. And man, I could preach on that. I do preach on that a lot. But... Uh, even under this covenant, God was long-suffering and He put up with the wickedness of men for over 1,500 years. But eventually, He came to a place, He says, My spirit's not going to strive with them forever. And then look at this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me, before I go on and read the rest of this, let me just point out that, you know, this is very descriptive of our world today. I mean, people have just given themselves over unto evil and unto wickedness. 
Now, some people may disagree with that. And, of course, there are exceptions to this. There are people who are seeking God and doing good. But, I mean, as a whole, if you just looked, say, for instance, at television, not a Christian television station, but if you looked at normal media, just the normal things and on, I mean, it is just given over to sexual perversion, to ungodliness, to... I mean, the... the uh, uh, cartoons that they have on are vulgar and crude. I'm talking about, you know, the primetime type of cartoons and stuff and the things that they show. It's just base. It's, it's given over to wickedness. And it seems like that people have just uh, given themselves over unto evil continually, exactly what the Lord was describing here. And in verse 6 it says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. You know, that verse, I have never read this verse. I mean, in my 40 plus years of studying the scriptures, every time I've ever read this verse, it has just, man, it has grieved me to think that God created man for his pleasure. It says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that all things are and were created for his pleasure. So mankind was created because God loved us. He wanted to have someone that he could love, that he could just bestow his goodness upon. He created mankind for fellowship. And there's many other scriptures that make that point. And yet here the Lord is saying that it grieved him at his heart and it repented. The Lord repented that he had ever created man on the earth. I tell you, that is a sad, sad thing. I am so sorry that we have grieved God like that. And yet, praise God for His goodness. Praise God that He so loved the world that He gave Jesus. And through Jesus, now I believe that He is pleased, not with everything that goes on in the human race, but for those who have accepted Him. I believe that God delights in us. He inhabits the praises of His people. God is getting joy unspeakable and full of glory through those of us who've accepted Him. God chooses to see the good and not focus on all of the bad. And I just praise God that He stuck with it. But I tell you, this really grieves me that it grieved the Lord and He actually repented that He had ever created man on the face of the earth. We were created for His pleasure. We were created to bring God glory. And I tell you, we need to help redeem this situation. I encourage you. I want you to join with me and we need to make a decision that God, I want you to be glorified in my life. I want to live my life in a way that doesn't bring dishonor to you, that brings glory to you, that points people to you, that helps make a difference. Instead of cursing the darkness, we need to turn on a light. We need to do something that begins to turn this situation around. And I tell you, you have a choice. You can do that. I encourage you to take this verse and to recognize that, man, it grieves God when we don't live holy, when we aren't glorifying Him. Not because God is imputing our sins unto us. Those of us who've accepted Jesus, God loves us in spite of what we do. But our, our actions still have consequences. How many ministers have gone out and have gained the following and God has used them and taught the word through them and then they turn around and they just give in to some type of a sexual sin or they steal money or they do things that brings dishonor to God. Man, I don't ever want to do that. 
I want to honor God and glorify God with my actions. And so in the next verse, after God had had uh, been grieved and repented that he made man on earth. It says in Genesis 6, 7, And the Lord God said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But look in verse 8. It says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, what I'm trying to do is to tell you how to be positive in a negative world. And Noah was living in a negative world where the thoughts of people's minds were only evil continually. I mean, they just gave themselves over to evil. We see this happening in our society, in our world today, where I mean evil is abounding. And uh, we are in a similar situation. How did Noah deal with this? It doesn't give us a tremendous amount of background, but it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to tell you that one of the things that helps you to deal with all of the negativism that is in our world today is to focus on the grace of God and on His mercy. You know, here's the way that I define mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting the judgment and the punishment that you deserve. You know, God is a just God. And he said that sin has to be judged and that if you eat of this fruit, which for Adam and Eve was a certain tree, but for us, if we just live in sin, the wages of sin is death. We are going to die. And that is justice. But through Jesus, God has extended mercy to us to where we don't get what we deserve. It it goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, I quoted the first part of that. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yes, there is a payment. There is a result, a consequence of sin, which is death. But through Jesus, the gift of God is eternal life. So that's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. But grace is different than mercy in the sense that it is getting all of the things that you don't deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, the judgment and the punishment. Grace is getting all of the goodness, all of the power, all of the ability of God that you don't deserve. And so we need mercy and grace. We not only need to be delivered from the punishment that was due unto us, but then we need the grace of God to be able to access all of His power and operate in things that we don't deserve. And I tell you, through Jesus, we've got mercy and grace delivered unto us. And it says that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. He found God's favor. He had God's favor and God's ability upon his life. And in the midst of this wicked generation, Noah had found grace. And it goes on to say that God spoke unto Noah. And in verse uh, 13, this is Genesis 6, 13. Or let me just back up and read a few verses. Uh, In verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence, very similar to today. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence 
through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And he goes on and talks about the exact dimensions of it, exactly how this ark was supposed to be built. And in verse 17, he says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee, they shall be male and female, of fowls also after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive, and take thou uh, unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it unto them, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And Noah... Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And so the scripture says Noah found grace. God not only had mercy on him and didn't give him the judgment that the rest of the world was receiving, but then God began to empower him and give him instructions and favor and show him how that through Noah, the entire human race would be preserved. Just stop and think about this that in the midst of this terrible situation where men were so corrupt that God just says, I'm going to kill them, not only them, but all of the animals and everything else. If you just focused on that, you talk about being depressed and being discouraged and thinking, man, that the world is going to hell, that the end of everything is at hand. You could have just focused on that. But Noah got a word from God and he began to focus on not the evil and the end of all of that, but instead God supernaturally choosing him and blessing him to be a channel through which the entire human race would benefit. You and I are alive today because a man found grace in the sight of God and focused on the answer instead of the problem. And he realized that even though that the world was so corrupt and there was going to be so much damage and so much destruction that there was also a lifeboat that God had determined to save not only all human life, but all animal life on this planet. And Noah was focused on that. And Noah did what God told him to do. And because of it, you and I are alive today. And it's a very similar type of situation. We are in a, we're in a world that is corrupt. But you know what? Where the darkness is, where the darkness is greater, then your little light could even shine brighter. And you could, instead of being focused on all of the negativism around you and the people that aren't receiving, you could focus on the fact that God has made us a light unto this world. It's, of course, Jesus in us. And it says we're like a city set on a hill and it cannot be hid. And you could take your light and you could begin to start sharing these truths. And you could become a channel of blessing. And even though there are people all around us being destroyed by the ungodliness, there are people receiving today. 
We have, I believe, now this is something you don't hear very often, but I believe that we live in the greatest day of evangelism that the world has ever known. There are millions of people turning to the Lord every single day. I've got friends that work among the Muslims. And, you know, we hear all the bad news about our hatred for America and for the Western world and how that they are practicing jihad and all these kind of things. But I know many people that are working among the Muslims. And I mean there are tens of thousands of Muslims that are having Jesus appear to them. And they are turning from that and they are turning unto God. We are seeing the greatest manifestation of God's power ever poured out in the history of the world. And instead of just being overwhelmed with the ungodliness, like Noah, we could be a channel of God using us to bless this world, to change your family, to change the people that you work with. I tell you, it's awesome. And anyway, the point I'm making is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord showed him that even though these terrible things were going to happen and that the earth was going to be overwhelmed with the flood and all life, not only human life, but animal life, was going to be destroyed except what he took into the ark. Noah could have focused on the bad. He could have talked, he could have just thought about how terrible it is that because of man's sins, God was bringing judgment upon them. But instead, I believe that he focused on the grace of God. And, you know, you could, you could look at it this way, that God, we all deserve to be destroyed. Notice it says in Genesis 6, 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't find justice. Noah didn't deserve to be spared. Even though Noah may have been more sensitive to the Lord and seeking God more than other people, if God would have only given Noah what he deserved, Noah would have been judged and destroyed just like everybody else. I know that there's some people that think, oh no, Noah was a great godly man. Well, compared to others, he was probably more godly and I'm sure that there was a sensitivity to the Lord. But you can find out after the flood was over, And after they came out of the ark, Noah planted a vineyard and then he began to celebrate and thank God for the fact that he had saved him and his family and all of these animals. And Noah got drunk and uh, there were some terrible things that happened and he wound up cursing his son who had seen him naked while he was drunk and some other things. So anyway, my point is that even though Noah may have been a cut above some of the other people, he wasn't perfect. He didn't deserve this. God has never had anybody perfect to work with yet. Nobody has ever been qualified. And so Noah could have looked at all of the people that were being judged and the terrible destruction and judgment that was coming on the earth, but he also could have looked at that God, even though we all deserve to be destroyed, you've given grace unto me. You've given me more than what I deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve. I've not only got the mercy of God, but you have... Uh, ordained me and used me to bring deliverance to the human race and to save life. And he could have focused on that and thought about, man, the goodness of God. God would have been just to wipe out the entire human race. I mean, he, we deserved it. We still deserve it. God isn't giving the human race what we deserve. And you can either focus on all of the bad things or you can focus on the good things of God and think about that even though uh, things are so bad and that there's so many bad things that are happening, look at the grace of God. 
Let me just point something out right here. Did you know it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? And my point has been to make that if you focus on the grace of God and the good things that God is doing instead of all of the bad things that the evil people are doing in this world, that it'll help you to stay positive in a negative world. Did you know that there is a tremendous amount of Christianity today, quote-unquote Christianity today, who is preaching the wrath and the judgment of God. You will be able to, if you flip through the dial, I bet you that there are people right at this exact same time who are preaching the wrath and the destruction that God's going to judge America or whatever country you're in. And they're talking about the wrath of God. And if you focus on the wrath of God, then you would be just like Noah who was looking at all of the people that were going to be destroyed and that could lead you to depression and discouragement and I guarantee you it'll make you negative in the midst of a negative world. Or you could be like Noah who even though these terrible things are happening, but you are focused on the grace of God. And I am here to tell you that God is not the one who's going to judge America or whatever country you live in. Am I saying that we don't deserve it? No, that's not what I'm saying. I believe that these nations have become correct, corrupt. We have lost our Christian foundation that we were founded upon, and we deserve the judgment of God. But I'm telling you the good news that God placed our judgment upon Jesus and God is not in the process of judging America or any other nation. Not because we don't deserve it, but because he placed that judgment upon Jesus. Now, does this mean then that we aren't going to have failure, that we are guaranteed to go on because God's not judging us? No, we are in the process of destroying ourselves. You know, in Jonah chapter 2, I think it's around verse 8, Jonah was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh and preach to them. And Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites because the Ninevites were the enemies of Israel. And it wouldn't be very many years after this Jonah's time that the Ninevites, the Assyrians, came and destroyed the nation of Israel. And he knew that these were the enemies of his nation. He didn't want them to prosper. He wanted them to be destroyed. And so rather than doing what God told him to do, he got into a ship and headed the other direction. And of course, you know the story about how God sent a storm and uh, the people, you know, were saying, man, somebody here must be extremely wicked for us to be in this terrible of a situation, this is the judgment of God. And Noah, I mean, Jonah told him that it's me. I'm a servant of the Most High God. And this struck fear into these other people because even though they believed in multiple gods, they knew the God of Israel was greater than their gods. And when they heard that, uh, they, they just were fearful and they knew that this is why all of these problems had come. And Jonah said, what you've got to do is throw me overboard and that will stop the problem. And these men didn't want to do that and they labored, but they were about to all be destroyed. And so finally they threw Jonah overboard and the moment they did, the storm stopped. And God prepared a whale. And this great fish, or it says a great fish in the Bible, it swallowed Jonah. Some people doubt this. And, you know, they say, how can this be and stuff? I don't have any problems with it. And matter of fact, they've actually found... uh, fish that are big enough to handle a person being inside of this fish. There are uh, documented cases of that. And so it's not at all impossible, but it was supernatural how God had Jonah survive for three days and three nights. Anyway, he went 
And in the, in the belly of this well, after he had rebelled at God and after all of these things had come upon him, Jonah said this, I think it's in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8, and he said, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Man, I think that that is a powerful statement. And this is by a man who had forsaken his own mercies. He had just operated in his own hatred for these Ninevites. He refused to do God's will. And as a result, man, look what happened to Jonah. And you know, the same thing is true, I believe, of our nation. When I was saying that God isn't going to punish us because He's placed our punishment upon Jesus and God's wrath isn't coming upon this nation or any other nation. It's not God specifically judging us because we live under the new covenant where the mercy and the grace of God is evident. But does this mean that things then are just going to go on and nothing's going to happen? No, we are forsaking our own mercies. I mean, this nation and most nations on the face of this earth are just aggressively moving against God and rejecting all influence and they're wanting to be absolutely secular and they don't want God's power in their life. And by doing so, they are forsaking the blessings and the mercies that God wants to give that nation. We need the mercy of God. We need His favor. We need His intervention because there is evil in this world. And there is a battle between good and evil. And America, even though it has certainly not been perfect, and I mean, we've got all kinds of flaws in our history. You can go back and see all kinds. I mean, we, we are a flawed nation and we have done things wrong. Still, overall, America has been an uh, influence for good. And I mean, in this fight between good and evil, America is one of the things that God is using to restrain the amount of evil in this world. But you know what? Because we are rejecting God and going more and more secular, more and more ungodly all of the time, then we are in the process of destroying ourselves. If there isn't a revival, if America doesn't turn back to God, if we don't begin to put godly people into leadership, man, we are in the process of destroying this nation. So am I saying that just because God isn't going to judge us, everything's going to be fine? No, that's not what I'm saying. We need to turn back to God. But I am saying that it's not God who's destroying us. We are in the process of destroying ourselves. The more we cooperate with the devil, the more we allow the devil the freedom to come in and to bring all of the evil and the corruption that we just see running rampant in this nation. But see, we've got a choice. Just like Noah... We can either focus on all of the people who are rejecting God and who are being destroyed because of their own choice. They are choosing death and destruction over life and peace. We could either focus on that or you can focus on all of the good. And I tell you, there is a lot of good. We don't hear it very often. Most of the people focus on all of the bad, but I am telling you that there is a tremendous amount of good being done. Again, I could get into specifics and give you just testimony after testimony after testimony. I've sometimes thought about this because, you know, some people on their television or radio programs will read letters from listeners about how their life is being changed. And we have tens of thousands of those. I mean, our phone center takes at least... Uh, 
25,000 calls a month. We've had over 30,000 calls in one month. And then we get emails and contacts. We have over 50,000 people a month that contact us. And I tell you, the vast majority of them are just talking about how that their love for God has come alive. Their bodies have been healed. In just the last month or so in our phone center, we have seen uh, people raised from the dead. They call, uh, somebody else called in and we prayed and a person was raised from the dead. We have seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, and that's just in my ministry. This same thing is happening in multiple ministries. I believe that it's the greatest time for evangelism, the greatest time of God moving on the earth that the earth has ever seen. Many of you would just disagree with that because you are plugged into the world's news and all you're doing is hearing all of the bad things. You hear the spirit of Antichrist being spoken daily over the television news, through the newspapers, through the magazines, through your friends and associates. And I guarantee you there is a tremendous amount of evil out there. But just like in Noah's day, I mean, the world was going to hell and they were facing the imminent judgment of God, and yet the goodness of God was evident too in the fact that He was preserving life. Not only human, but animal life through Noah. He gave him specific instructions. And God's goodness was evident right in the midst of all of the evil. And you could either focus on the evil and become discouraged, or you could focus on the good and say, God, how good are you? that you're going to preserve life. There's not a one of us that deserve it. Even the animal creation. You know, God created the animal creation to all be, I, forget, I sometimes don't pronounce this word correctly, but herbivorous, where they all ate plants and things like that. But after the fall of man, then they became carnivorous and they began to destroy each other and the anger and the wrath and the evil, even among the animal creations. God was going to destroy the whole thing. And yet you could look at it and say that, man, this is a miracle how God not only chose Noah, gave him the instructions to build the ark, but there is no way that Noah could have gone and gathered all of these animals. These animals came to him supernaturally, two by two for the unclean animals and for the clean animals, seven uh, in, in pairs of seven. And God supernaturally brought them to him. I mean, that is a miracle of unprecedented uh, degree. I don't know how in the world God got it all done, but I, since He's God, I believe He did it. And every animal that we see on the earth today was preserved through that uh, ark that was created. It was a miracle that He brought them together. They must have had to gone into like hibernation or something like that for them to be able to last that entire time. For Noah to be able to bring all of the food that they needed to eat and all of these kind of things. For these animals, like a lion, to get along with the lamb, there must have been some supernatural intervention. I mean, many people, because this is a miracle of huge proportions, they just doubt that it ever happened, and they just come and say, how could this happen? And they, I don't doubt that it happened at all. And instead, it makes me just appreciate God. And you talk about the grace of God the power and the ability of God that we didn't deserve being in evidence, it was powerful. I mean, I don't know that this happened, but it is very possible that Noah could have woke up every day and as he worked on that ark and as he was getting directions from God and doing these things, Noah could have just been overwhelmed every day to see these animals just coming to him. 
I mean supernatural to see these animals that normally would devour one another, getting along with one another, to see all of God's intervention, to have God give him instructions, all of these things. He could have woken up every single day just overwhelmed, seeing the goodness and the grace of God. So see, you've got a choice. Just like as in Noah's day, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And we have plenty of evil. You have a choice whether to focus on the evil. And if you do, you are going to become negative because of the negativity that's in this world. But you also have the ability to look on the good. You also have the ability to see people's lives that are being changed. You need to be saying, thank God things are as good as they are. It could be worse. Paul lived under a system where the Caesar proclaimed himself as God where he just did things whatever he wanted. They lived in rampant immorality. Homosexuality was dominant. Uh, Slavery was dominant. Injustice prevailed. There was just terrible, terrible things going on. You know, as bad as our system is, and regardless how the elections go, you know, it still isn't as bad as the system that Paul lived under. And so regardless of how bad things are and regardless of where it looks like we're going, you know, I can look back and say it's still not going to hinder me. Paul prospered, the gospel prospered under a system that was even worse than ours. And yet the gospel prospered. And you know what? The gospel is going to prosper. And I look at this and I say, if Paul did it, I can do it. If Paul had to endure all of these kind of things, I can endure whatever comes against us. And see, you have a choice. Again, Noah lived in a situation that I believe was worse than ours and the doom that was coming upon them was was imminent. It was going to come in his lifetime. We don't know for sure if the second coming of the Lord and all of his judgment is going to come in our lifetime or not. And so in a way, we are better off than Noah and yet it's the exact same principle. We can look at the ungodliness and be overwhelmed with that or you can choose to look at it and say, Father, thank you that all that your goodness is still here. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 24, where the Lord started talking about as it was in the days of Noah, and he says that's the way it's going to be in the end times. In the very end of that, he says when you see all of these things come to pass, which is talking about earthquakes, famines, pestilence, wars, terrible, terrible, terrible judgments and things coming upon the earth. He says when you see these things happen, then lift up your head and look up for your redemption draws nigh. If you actually look at things through God's perspective, even if this is the end times, and I mean the imminent return of the Lord is here, man, we have a lot to be rejoicing for. We could look up and say, it's not going to be very long. And I tell you, you can't be positive in the midst of a negative world. 